the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Dave King engineering. Today on the program, we're going to hear a conversation I had just a while ago with the North Clackamas School Board candidates, four of them, as a reminder that we have an election and school board uh, election at that. It's important who sits on the school board and the decisions they make. It's the number two issue in terms of uh, funding in the state of Oregon. We'll also hear a classic interview with Diane Flint. School boards, a call to action is the title of her work. That's coming up in uh, later this hour and in the second hour of today's program. Well, the sheer magnitude of Biden family corruption uncovered by the House Oversight Committee can only be described as breathtaking. That's what one observer said. The explosive new evidence that the Biden family uh, has been involved in a multi-level impeachable offense, if the president can be tied to it. It's uh, disheartening. We spent way too much time on the previous administration with impeachments and investigations. And here we're launching into it again. I'm not suggesting guilt or innocence, but the distraction, um, perhaps a necessary distraction, I don't know. Uh, that is required for these kinds of investigations tells you a great deal about where we stand as a country in terms of our elected officials. Well, documents show that over $10 million in foreign money flowed like a river into more than 20 shell companies and LLCs created for the Biden's financial benefit, according to uh, Mr. Comer, who held the uh, press conference earlier today. Much of it was then surreptitiously shuffled around various accounts before it landed in the hands of nine members of the president's family. He was vice president at the time. Those companies have no apparent business purpose other than to serve as a reciprocal receptacle rather for hiding cash derived from suspected influence peddling schemes overseas. Well, the incriminating evidence comes from thousands of subpoenaed banking records, wire transfers and electronic Transactions contained in more than 170 suspicious activity reports that were flagged by banks and sent to the criminal division of the Treasury Department. The Biden administration refused to cough up those records until the committee recently forced its hand. There are still more documents to be examined, suggesting that the uh, Biden's profiteering uh, could far exceed the millions of dollars already tracked. Now, in Washington, where corruption and graft are epidemic, the Biden uh, Biden's rather appear to have taken it to dizzying heights. While greed was the likely motive, concealment was a key to success, uh, according to the announcement made earlier today. We're going to follow this investigation as it moves forward to the detriment of the people's business. But perhaps out of necessity, it's not altogether clear. I don't know about you, but I'm just exhausted by the revelation of corruption among leaders in our nation's capital and elsewhere. Meanwhile, House Republicans on Wednesday advanced legislation to kill President Biden's attempt to cancel student loan debt for tens of millions of borrowers, a controversial move that the government has said uh, would cost it more than $400 billion. The House Education Committee 
uh, and Workforce Committee, rather, passed a resolution aimed at terminating the president's policy, which was supported by every Republican on the committee and opposed by every Democrat. Committee passage means the resolution from Representative Bob Good, the Republican from Virginia, now has a chance to get a vote on the House floor. Now keep in mind, that's just the House. Uh, said the uh, sponsor of the bill, Representative Good, I am pleased to lead the House effort to overturn President Biden's student loan transfer scheme that would burden the wallets of hardworking American taxpayers to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, His plan to force American citizens to pay off the debts of others is unfair, unethical, unconstitutional and unlawful. As my legislation is readied for the House floor, I urge my colleagues to vote to put an end to President Biden's reckless actions. He went on to say, well, during committee debate, Democrats warned that voting down the president's student loan handout would strip away relief that millions of people are anticipating, whether or not it's uh, unfair, unethical, unconstitutional and or unlawful. Uh, This resolution would hurt millions of student borrowers and their families, said Representative Bobby Scott, a Democrat also from Virginia. Scott added that the resolution seeks to deny all of these borrowers the relief they were promised. The question is, however, should they have been promised? The president announced last summer that he would cancel up to $10,000 in student loan for people making less than $125,000 and up to $20,000 for students who received Pell Grants. That program was expected to cost the government more than $400 billion in lost debt repayment, but the program was put on hold after a court blocked it. It remains blocked. Assuming House Republicans pass Goods Resolution, it would be uh, up to the Senate, where passage is unlikely, as Senate Democrat leaders support Biden's plan. However, Congress has had some success fighting the administration's policies using the Congressional Review Act, even though Democrats control the Senate. In March, for example, the Senate voted 53 to 43 to overturn a Biden regulation, expanding the government's ability to regulate water sources. So we'll continue to follow the story. The 89-year-old Democrat Dianne Feinstein, the senator, returned to the Senate on Wednesday after a three-month absence due to health issues and cast her first vote since February 16th. Uh, Senator Feinstein uh, arrived in a wheelchair, although she was able to exit the vehicle without one. Upon her arrival on uh, Capitol Hill, she was assisted into the wheelchair, greeted by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. She told reporters that she feels much better, but she didn't answer questions about why she decided to return or respond to calls from critics to resign. The two votes were the first that Feinstein has cast uh, since February. She missed two votes that were held earlier Wednesday before her arrival, adding to the 91 floor votes she missed while she recovered from shingles, according to sources. In a statement released uh, Wednesday afternoon, the senator said that she is back in Washington, but will be working a lighter schedule as she resumes her duties. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll begin a conversation I had with four North Clackamas school board candidates, a reminder of how important this election is and how significant school board elections are. That's coming up later this hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, a conversation with four candidates for North Clackamas School Board. Representative George Santos pleaded not guilty to all 13 charges against him hours after he surrendered on Wednesday morning.
to authorities at the Long Island courthouse after federal prosecutors filed criminal charges against him. Santos faces three counts of money laundering, one count of theft of public funds, seven counts of wire fraud, two counts of making false statements before the House of Representatives. This indictment seeks to hold Santos accountable for various alleged fraudulent schemes and brazen misrepresentations. That's a quote from the U.S. attorney. Uh, Brian Peace, in a statement released on Wednesday, Santos used political contributions to line his pockets, unlawfully applied for unemployment benefits that should have gone to New Yorkers who had lost their jobs due to the pandemic and lied to the House of Representatives, the lawyer added. Well, since Election Day of last year, several reports have emerged challenging biographical details Santos shared about himself on the campaign trail. Ahead of uh, today's press conference on the Biden family, the White House accused House Oversight and Accountability uh, Committee Chairman James Comer of leading an evidence-free, politically motivated investigation into the Biden family, just as Comer was set to provide an update in his investigation. Comer, the Republican out of Kentucky, held a press conference this morning to describe the latest details of his committee's probe of the Biden family's foreign business dealings. And a memo provided to Fox News Digital by the White House spokesman Ian Sams wrote that Comer's absurd innuendo ignores reality. Predictably, the side that is being assaulted uh, legally uh, denies all charges. And we've seen this played out before. California Governor Gavin Newsom declined a, a, to back reparations checks, saying that slavery's legacy is about more than cash payments. I wonder what his uh, constituents there think. Those who are insisting on reparations. Multiple Senate Democrats are departing ahead of what is expected to be a tough election year for the party and have announced their decision to not seek office again in 2024. Could other Democrats bow out this, their races as well? Well, last week, Senator Ben Cardin from Maryland became the latest member of his party to announce he will not seek re-election to the upper chamber next year. Like several of his Senate counterparts, Cardin's tenure in the Senate, which began in 2007, is slated to expire in January of 25. Similar to other aging senators who are viewing the optics and potential of the race, Cardin, 79, is looking to provide a younger member of his party with an opportunity to represent the old line state in the Senate. In February, Senator Dianne Feinstein announced she would not seek re-election in 24, following the in the footsteps of Senator Debbie Stabenow from Michigan, who announced this year that she would relinquish her seat in the upper chamber when her term expires in less than two years. The recent retirement announcements bring into question uh, which other Democrat senators could step aside and watch from the sidelines of what is expected to be a rather bruising round of elections for the party as Democrats uh, seek to defend a majority of the seats that are up for grabs next cycle. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is blaming President Biden for the ongoing migrant crisis at the southern border as border officials prepare for the ending of Title 42 at midnight tonight, uh, with Haley promoting her plan to secure the border if she were to become president. Never forget that Joe Biden created this crisis, she said. He urged migrants to surge the border, she said, referring to remarks Biden made as a presidential primary candidate. Haley then noted that Biden's reversal of Trump-era policies, such as the Remain in Mexico policy and border wall construction, which Republicans have argued were working to bring down apprehensions. He caved to the radical wing of his party and reversed policies that were working. Now Biden has turned every state in America into a border state, she said. My plan calls for implementing a national E-Verify program, defunding sanctuary cities, 
uh, stopping handouts to illegal immigrants and firing Biden's new IRS agents and hiring 25,000 new Border Patrol and ICE agents. She became the first announced 2024 candidate to visit the border last month, where she made a number of stops in Texas. She also used the trip to roll out her plan for the border, which includes the mandate for E-Verify. Haley had previously backed the program when she signed legislation as governor of South Carolina to require all businesses to use the immigration status verification tool. Republican senators on Tuesday introduced legislation that would ban taxpayer-funded drag queen events on military bases following reports of the um, Malmstrom Air Force Base in Great Falls, Montana, hosted a drag queen story hour for children on the base in 21. The bill, led by Senator Steve Daines from Montana, says that no funds appropriated or otherwise made available for the Department of Defense and no facilities owned or operated by the Department of Defense may be used to host, advertise, or otherwise support an adult cabaret performance. The bill defines adult cabaret as a performance that features topless dancers, go-go dancers, exotic dancers, strippers, male or female impersonators, who provide entertainment that appears to uh, that appeals rather to prurient interests. President Biden said his administration successfully implemented a vaccination requirement for the federal government, the largest employer in the nation, achieving a 98 percent compliance rate that reflected employees who had received at least one dose of COVID-19 vaccine or had a pending or approved exemption or extension request in January of 22. The president also touted that his administration had effectively implemented the largest adult vaccination program in the history of the United States, with over 270 million Americans receiving at least one dose of COVID-19 vaccine. On October 25th of 2021, rather, the president similarly had issued Proclamation 10294, requiring foreigners flying to the United States to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Federal courts and Congress have already rolled back his vaccination requirements for large employers and military service members. But mandates had remained for many employees in the National Institutes of Health. Indian Health Service and Department of Veterans Affairs, which implemented their own requirements for health care staff and others independent of the White House and will remain while those agencies review their own requirements, the administration said. Meanwhile, the Title 42 public health order, which blocked some migrants from entering the U.S., is expected to expire midnight tonight, prompting a surge at the southern border. Anheuser-Busch found itself slammed by April's beer numbers as the unrelenting backlash it has received from its partnership with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney appears to be uh, the gift that keeps on giving. Total Anheuser-Busch beer volumes fell 12.5 percent as brands such as others, I won't even bother to mention, rose 7.6 percent and 3.8 percent respectively. Bud Light entered it specifically bad beating the iconic blue can was down 21.4% for the month, according to the data collected until the 29th of April. And Budweiser was down 11.5%. Coors Light, on the other hand, rose 10.9%. A new poll released by Gallup on Tuesday morning revealed that nearly half of Americans have almost no confidence in the president to do the right thing when it comes to the national economy. Only 35% surveyed have confidence the uh, Biden's 
uh, economic leadership or in his economic leadership, an approval rating that places him near the historical low set by President George W. Bush in 2008, who was at the time mired by foreign wars and the Great Recession. Behind the president, the next group with the lowest rating on national support were Democrats in Congress with 41 percent of respondents having barely any faith in their economic leadership. Conversely, congressional Republicans have remained relatively impervious to steep declines in confidence. Of course, they're not fully in charge. Americans have low confidence in the president, the Federal Reserve uh, co-chair Jerome Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on the economy as well. U.S. President Biden and congressional Republicans failed to reach a breakthrough after their first big meeting to avert a crisis over the debt ceiling, but agreed to continue talks and hold a new summit on Friday. Speaking outside the White House on Tuesday afternoon, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House Speaker, said there's been no new movement after America's top political leaders gathered for just over an hour. Everybody reiterated the positions they were in, McCarthy said. The Republican-led House last month passed a bill that would raise the debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion in exchange for $4.8 trillion in budget deficit cuts over 10 years. It would actually slow the growth rather than uh, call for specific cuts. The White House has said it will only accept a clean, no-strings-attached debt ceiling increase, although the president is open to separate talks on the budget levels for fiscal 2024. There was another meeting again set for Friday. Former President Trump has been found liable of sexual abuse in 1996. Gene Carroll, his accuser, has been awarded $5 million. A Manhattan federal jury found the former president sexually abused E. Gene Carroll in a luxury department store dressing room in the spring of 1996 and awarded her $5 million for battery and defamation. She alleged Trump raped her in a Bergdorf Goodman a department store, and then defamed her when he denied her claim, said she wasn't his type, and suggested she made up the story to boost sales of her book. Uh, the then-civilian Trump denied all wrongdoing. Carroll filed a lawsuit last November under a New York State Adult Survivors Act, a state bill which opened a look-back window for sexual assault allegations like Carroll's with a long-expired statute of limitations. Guatemala's president has warned the U.S. of some 80,000 migrants heading toward the U.S. border. This is from one single country. U.S. Representative Tony Gonzalez from Texas says he learned from the president of Guatemala that more than 80,000 migrants, primarily from Venezuela, are moving toward the U.S.-Mexico border ahead of the expiration of Title 42. The president also said that he tried to call the White House on the matter, but nobody would take his calls. Once the board, the order ends, droves of migrants are expected to arrive at the border. Many are already there, believing they have a better chance of being admitted into the United States, although the Biden administration has said that that is not true. Uh, nonstop illegal crossing continued bef- uh, in Brownsville. This is another group of several hundred that just crossed over, some out, out of um, frame under the levee. More are coming, said one observer. This week, Governor Doug Burgum, a Republican from North Dakota, signed a bill into law that allows teachers at public schools and state government employees to refer to transgender people by their name and pronouns that correspond to their biological sex rather than their gender identity. According to The Hill, the new legislation requires school teachers to inform a student's parents or legal guardian if they begin to identify as transgender. The legislation reportedly passed the House and Senate with veto-proof majorities. Opponents of the bill claim that it violates students' privacy, particularly for students who identify as transgender and do not want to tell their parents. 
Previously, Burgum vetoed a nearly identical bill. At that time, the state legislature did not have enough votes to override that veto. This time, they do. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, one more segment of uh, news, and then we'll have a conversation with North Clackamas School Board candidates uh, running uh, together, all four of them, in order to have a significant influence. We'll talk about the importance of the school board um, when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Again, coming up in our next segment and for the next several segments, we're going to talk about the importance of school boards. So stay with us. Well, former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried is attempting to get 10 to 13 charges dropped. Man, if you get 10 to 13 dropped, that means you have a lot of charges. Anyway, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, who has long denied stealing from customers of his FTX cryptocurrency exchange, said prosecutors charge him with troubling haste and asked the U.S. judge to throw out 10 of the 13 charges or the counts, criminal counts against him. In a filing in Manhattan Federal Court on Monday, Bankman-Fried's lawyer said now bankrupt FTX uh, was far from the uh, only cryptocurrency company to collapse during a broad market crash in 2022 and that prosecutors hastily charged their client in a rush to judgment. They might disagree with that uh, assessment. Mr. Bankman-Fried has pleaded not guilty and is currently under home detention at his parents' California house while he awaits trial in October. The CIA conspired with former acting director Mike Morrell and the Biden campaign to produce a letter falsely claiming that emails from Hunter Biden's laptop were Russian disinformation and solicited signatures from at least one former intelligence official. Morrell told the CIA's uh, pre-publication classification review board that he needed the letter approved as an unusual rush job that day, October 19th, 2020, in an effort to provide then-candidate Joe Biden ammunition in the final presidential debate to discredit the post report on the Biden emails, which had been published five days earlier. It turns out that uh, Blinken communicated with Hunter Biden by email when he was deputy secretary of state in the Obama-Biden administration. Blinken obscured some of his correspondence with the then vice president's son by conducting it via a private email account, thus ensuring that it wouldn't be recorded in the government's record-keeping system. But it was recorded on Hunter's laptop. In his testimony, Blinken denied having ever had email communications with Hunter. The laptop demonstrates that his testimony was untrue. An NFL player's ruined reputation and career is over, over false allegations. Now, this is what happens when we operate in a guilty until proven innocent society. Matt Arazia looked like he would uh, have a promising NFL career after he was named the Buffalo Bills starting punter last August. A San Diego State University graduate, his talent earned him the nickname Pump God. But within days of landing the position, a woman filed a civil lawsuit claiming that um, he and two college football teammates assaulted her when she was 17. The civil lawsuit became public record and based on the allegation, media and public vilification, Arazia taking the claim uh, at face value. Now a 200 uh, long page uh, transcript of a nearly two hour meeting explains why prosecutors didn't file charges. According to investigators, he wasn't even at the house when the incident is alleged to have occurred. Since the accusation, he was released from the bills and has yet to be picked up by another team in the league, despite the December announcement the charges would not be pressed. Hmm. Innocent until proven guilty. Football player, Democrat, 
Republican. Inflation slows as confidence in the president uh, hits an historic low. The rate of inflationary growth is slowing, with April showing a a 4.9 inflation rate over last year. The slowing was encouraging news for the Federal Reserve, indicating that its string of interest rate hikes has been working. That said, Americans are still experiencing a negative economy that continues to make them poorer by reducing their buying power. The Biden administration is set to send another $1.2 billion to Ukraine, with Joe Biden digging his, his heels in over raising the debt ceiling with Republicans' federal spending reductions. The administration is set to announce another $1.2 billion military aid package for Ukraine. This latest addition would rise uh, to the, raise rather the total amount the U.S. has sent to Ukraine since Russia invaded last year to $36.9 billion, though billions more have been allocated. The National Institutes of Health renewed a grant to COVID gain-of-function EcoHealth, and Senator Rubio is proposing to ban SNAP purchases of junk food. Junk food should be banned from the super, uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, contends the uh, Republican senator. Noting the nation's growing problem with obesity, Rubio called on Congress to explicitly exclude junk food like sodas and candy from being eligible for SNAP purchases. Oklahoma revoked funding for PBS, a bill that would have funded Oklahoma's state PBS station through 2026, was recently vetoed by Republican Governor Kevin Stitt. The reason? The indoctrination of children with a leftist LGBTQ sexualization agenda. Apparently, John Kerry has found his war medals. Uh, John Kerry is not a man of character or honor, as we and many others have long noted, one observer points out. Over the weekend... Kerry's self-important hypocrisy was fully on display as he attended King Charles' coronation. Displayed on the breast of his suit jacket were the medals he was awarded in Vietnam, medals he claimed back in 1971 to have thrown away in protest of the war. Later in 1984, he admitted that he had not actually thrown away his medals, which included the Bronze Star, Silver Star, and Three Purple Hearts, but rather some other soldiers' medals. In 2004, his story changed again, this time saying he kept the medals, but he did not regret throwing them away. And what he did throw away were his ribbons. Well, whether the medals he wore last weekend were genuine, genuinely his or not, what is still yet to recover is any character or honor he may have possessed uh, when he first went to serve and then lied about the medals. Comer unveiled a Biden family influence peddling in Romania and China. At least that's what the allegations are. Outgoing Mayor Lori Lightfoot declared a state of emergency over the surge of illegal migrants into Chicago, a sanctuary uh, city. Texas Governor Abbott promises to ship thousands more to sanctuary cities like New York City in the wake of the Title 42 ending midnight tonight. Congressman George Santos faces federal criminal charges and Fort Hood in Texas officially changed its name to Fort Cavazos to uh, remove the reference to the Confederacy. Berkshire Hathaway shareholders overwhelmingly shot down climate and diversity proposals, and a dozen states have joined California and many countries in passing legislation to ban the sale of conventional cars and push everyone into electric vehicles, many within the decade. Similarly, in a feat of regulatory legislation, Decision making, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has proposed emissions rules that would effectively require automobiles to sell mostly EVs. And of course, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, a.k.a. the Green New Deal, gushes subsidies across the EV 
uh, ecosystem. Well, the uh, rush to subsidize and mandate EVs is animated by a fatal conceit. The assumption that they will radically reduce CO2 emissions. That assumption is embedded to orthodoxy, not just among green pundits and administrators of the regulatory state, but also among EV critics who take issue with a forced transition, mainly on grounds of loss of freedom, costs and market distortions. But the truth is, because of the nature of uncertainties in global industrial ecosystems, no one really knows how much widespread adoption of EVs could actually reduce emissions or whether they might even increase them. And no, this is nothing to do with the uh, truth joke that Teslas are coal fired uh, when fueled at night in many places. And while grid realities will indeed matter more than most realize, the relevant and surprising emissions wildcard comes from the gargantuan energy hungry processes needed to make EV batteries. This is one of those technical issues that tends to attract slogans, simplifications and illusions of accuracy a better understanding requires some patience. And in a bit of uh, satire, Mayorkas heads to the border to fire a starter pistol and Title 42 expires. On this day in history, 1924, J. Edgar Hoover is named acting director of the Bureau of Investigation, later known as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI. 1865, Confederate President Jefferson Davis is captured by Union forces in Irwinville, Georgia. A golden spike is driven in Promontory, Utah, marking the completion of the first transcontinental railroad in the United States. 1933, the Nazis stage massive public book burnings in Germany. 1940, during World War II, German forces began invading the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Belgium, and France. The same day, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain resigns and Winston Churchill becomes prime minister, forming a new government. 1975, Sony begins selling its um, Betamax home video cassette recorder in Japan. 1994, Nelson Mandela takes the oath of office and Pretoria to become South Africa's first black president. 2013, the IRS apologizes for what it acknowledges was inappropriate targeting of conservative political groups during the 2012 election to see if they were violating their tax-exempt status. 2013, the U.S. government scientists say worldwide levels of carbon dioxide hit a milestone, reaching an amount never before encountered by humans. 2014, on this day in history, First Lady Michelle Obama delivered the weekly presidential radio and Internet address in place of her husband, decrying the kidnapping of scores of Nigerian schoolgirls by the group Boko Haram. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, President Trump announces that he would meet in Singapore with North Korea's Kim Jong-un on the 12th of June. The announcement comes hours after Trump hosts a welcome home for three Americans who would be held in Kim's government. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest ran for school board as a conservative Christian in 1985. She won with a very strategic campaign and the favor of God, but not without persecution against her and her family. And it was intense. Well, in 1988, she wrote the book School Boards, A Call to Action. It's the first edition. She traveled 44 states giving school board workshops and speaking in churches. It's estimated that some 2000 parents and citizens won their elections as a result. And in this second edition, we'll be talking about in just a moment. She teaches parents the importance of 
and power of doing spiritual warfare in their school districts. One of the thing the things that the isolation following the pandemic did was it gave parents an opportunity to see what's actually going on in classrooms. And they have uh, become much more activist about uh, what they see. She's updated her school board's uh, book, A Call to Action, written from a Christian mother's perspective. Um, she overcame the fear and and provides some equipping uh, with tools and tactics needed for an effective campaign for those who would like to, uh, to step into that calling. Well, Dr. Wendy Flint joins us now to talk about this great resource. I hope you'll um, plan to put in your hands. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Georgine. I'm so happy to connect with you. I've been a professor for years. Well, thank you. You are a professor at George Fox, and you are an Oregonian now, but you originally served as president of the board in Evergreen School District in Washington. Um, and uh, your experience is included in this second edition of the book, School Boards, A Call to Action. Yes. Um, I raised our children. My husband and I raised our children. Uh, we were over there for about 26 years, involved in that district and very much involved in the schools. Uh, and uh, now we're over in Sherwood, Oregon. One of the things I've appreciated is watching parents um, wake up to what's happening in their school districts, in their schools, and confronting school boards with, um, this is not what we signed up for. This is not what our tax dollars were intended for. And they're confronting school districts, and there's quite a bit of contention. Can you tell us a little bit about what the situation was like in 85 when you, as a, a conservative, decided, I'm going to step into um, a campaign and seek a role in a school board? Well, what's interesting is, as a young mother, I don't think I politically had any definition of myself. Um, I was just involved in schools and cared about my kids mm-hmm. and, and had you know moral values. So when I chose to run, um, it was because of concern, uh, you know, for the curriculum, for what my children were being exposed to, and for the, because of the arrogance of the school board that was not listening to the parents. After I made that decision to run with a supportive parent, I discovered that the press um, back then, be the media today, um, and the teachers' union, when they found out I had conservative point of view and that I was a Christian, um, the attack became very intense. I had no idea the hatred um, toward conservatives and Christians. And so there was a lot of exaggeration, mm-hmm. false accusations, and persecution. It wasn't easy, but God was with me. Well, let, let me ask you about that, because I think for a lot of parents, they would have to be called by God himself before they would enter into <laughs> that kind of conflict. For you, what what compelled you? Was there a specific call? Was it driven by your concern and a sense of responsibility for your children, the school district and your, and your community? The, I think the call came when the Lord spoke to my heart and said, I've called you the leadership. And I was very surprised because I was a young mom and I somehow didn't visualize that, but he said, there's a calling on your life for leadership. And then when I was invited to do this, and I, uh, would you run? And I prayed with my husband. Um, you know, we, we were just weighing it back and forth. Was I really qualified? Should I do this? And amazingly, through prayer, people started calling me on the phone or sending me messages. Even one mother knocked on my door and said, the Lord said, that, uh, come talk to you and encourage you. Uh, another group said we've been praying for years for God to send 
someone to run for this school board and we think you're the one. So he sent a lot of messages. I had doubts and fears, but he sent a lot of confirming messages and scriptures. I've called you to do this and I'm going to be with you. I want you to do this. Now, some people are just strong patriots, angry, um, and they are determined uh, to win. I wasn't one of those um, strong people at the time. I, I needed to lean entirely on the Lord. Yeah, I think a lot of people are frustrated by what they're seeing and want to do something that's effective. A lot of people feel that they're called, but they may question whether or not they're qualified. How do you address that? Do you have to have a certain set of credentials before you should consider stepping into and uh, holding accountable the decision makers in uh, public education across the states of Oregon and, and Washington? There absolutely is no requirement except in some states, basic, you know, you need to read and write. There's no educational requirements, no experience. It has been set up uh, to be run by local citizens mm-hmm. and parents. It never was intended for educated professionals, even though a lot of educational professionals do run for school board. It was set up to be a local a decision-making body where parents would have a voice. It was, you know, common law in the original days, and parents were very much involved. So there are no real qualifications, but, you know, basically I went to the library and started looking at education law. Um, I got a book of resolutions from the district and started reading what the resolutions were, Um, and I just, you know, started uh, studying and talking to people of what it would take to make decisions on the board. Once you're on the board, you get all the materials, you get all the training, um, you go to workshops, you work with your colleagues, and so you pick it up pretty quickly what the role and responsibility is. And once you're elected, then you you basically have the responsibility of reviewing um, all the materials or budgets and curriculum that come to you um, and vote on that. So a majority-controlled board, Uh, has the majority decision of what's going to be in that district, especially when it is regard to academics and curriculum. In the introduction of your book, School Boards, A Call to Action, you quote the what's now become the infamous statement by Virginia Governor at the time, Virginia Governor McAuliffe, who uh, who made the point that, you know, parents really um, have no role to play when it comes to education. I think there's a a, a back and forth as to what is the role of parents, what's the role of educators, and in the local um, school districts, uh, is it true that parents do have authority? Is it true that parents should pursue input? And let me ask you to, because you've been in that arena, let me ask you to comment on Governor McCullough's uh, statement during his debate in Alexandria, saying, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Your thoughts on the role of parents in education in general, and the role of school boards in helping to shape the direction that education goes? Really good question. I'm glad you asked it. It it infuriates me when they say that. And, of course, they're saying it uh, with the point of view as if we could go into a classroom and tell people what to teach. Of course, teachers are trained, educated. My daughter has been a teacher for over 20 years um, in the public school system. And um, I would never tell her how to teach her subjects, but I can evaluate um, the, whether the content as a board member is truly reflecting the history of our nation. Um, is, is it, uh, what are the reading scores of our students? Do we need to look at the curriculum um, to make the scores go up? 
you know, we have a, we are responsible according to law when we're on a school board to be accountable not only for the quality of the curriculum, it says that in the law, but we're accountable uh, to the values and morals that the community is asking for uh, when they come uh, and talk to us. So I, when, what we're saying is parents have a right to be concerned about what is being taught their children when they see it at home or online during COVID, and they have a right to go through the process of instructional committees where there's protests or go to the board, appeal to the board, uh, to go single or in groups. Um, and present their concerns, and the school board has the choice whether to listen or not. And when they don't listen to the local input of parents who do have a right to evaluate their children's uh, education and materials and ensure its quality, um, the board doesn't respond, then the only solution is to replace the board members. And, And that's not that easy, but if you get organized, it can be done and get established for years to come. So it it isn't just directly telling the teacher what to teach. We have, uh, we pay the taxes. Those are our children. We're entrusting them to those teachers and those administrators. And the law allows us to have input into that. And and there's a lot of laws stated in my book, by the way, where there's been court cases and the parents win. Yes, yes. Once again, we're talking about school boards, a call to action written by my guest, Wendy Flint. Uh, Dr. Flint is a professor at uh, George Fox University. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking with Dr. Wendy Flint. She's an author and speaker, has over 35 years experience in the business sector, K through 12 and higher education. She's a former president of the board of an Evergreen School District in Washington. Dr. Flint authored the first edition of School Boards, A Call to Action in 1988 and traveled to 44 states from 88 to 90, giving school board election workshops and making appearances on radio and television stations. Over 2,000 citizens have won their elections with Dr. Flint's book and her training. That book is now updated and available for you in your school district or perhaps for you as an individual. If you sense a calling of God to run for the school board or if you are um, outraged and dissatisfied with what's happening and you're considering making such a move, this is a great, um, great resource. How would you describe um, the book School Boards, A Call to Action? Is it a workbook? Is it a uh, a campaign manual. How would you describe it? I definitely call it a training manual. Uh, it gives you every uh, detail you need to organize a campaign uh, that has worked over and over again. The basic skills for that, because um, some people don't know, you know, what they should do. It's interesting in some of the um, elections they have them off season, like not during November. It might be in April or mm-hmm. May. The turnout can be very low, so your ability to win a school board election with a mailing, with phone calls, with getting out the vote, your ability to win and be successful is very very high. What's different about this book this time is that when I wrote the first edition and I was on the road training from state to state, um, it was mostly technical um, about how the questions to ask a superintendent, um, how you can influence legislation, how to run your campaign. But what it didn't have was the spiritual warfare that uh, my campaign manager and I did during this campaign and just really leaning on the Lord, 
not only during the campaign, but after making decisions on the board and praying for the children of the district. And so my personal testimony of what I went through, my children went through, the victories that God gave us wasn't in the first book. But this time, you know, I'm 73 years old. I have six grandchildren in college. Um, And, um, you know, the Lord called me to rewrite the book again. And this time I wanted to make sure I left the message uh, to parents who were doing this as Christians, that they understood the major difference that prayer uh, can do in the schools, especially once you get into that leadership position. We often think about uh, legislators, city council member, county councilmen, people who are called to uh, our nation's capital. How significant is the school board in shaping, first of all, the the young people who go through our public education system? But how significant is a position on the school board to impacting and influencing the direction of our communities? Well, there's so much legislation, resolutions that are written in the district level and then resolutions that are written at the state level. So when you're a board member, these resolutions steer the the district in the direction um, that you want to go. And we wrote a religious policy as soon as uh, we had a majority controlled board in the state of Washington required us to write one. And I was amazed at the opposition that came into the boardroom that from the ACLU and others that they didn't want children to even be allowed to pray over their food at the table in the cafeteria and said it would take away the rights of the other children sitting at the table. And and so the freedom of our children depends on these resolutions uh, that we write and the opposition, um, you know, has very destructive ideas um, for our schools. And then once you're on the school board, you go to a legislative meeting and you vote on resolution that goes to the legislature that says the school board association in this state is telling you legislators, this is what we want in schools. And it's very powerful lobbying group. And so as we increase in our numbers for wanting these values in schools, we start to influence the local um, association in our state. And I recall many times at many meetings where they have proposed to remove the American flag from the classrooms in America, and it never ends. They always want that flag out, and they want a United Nations flag or some education flag put in instead. And if it wasn't for the voice of board members stopping that, we wouldn't be seeing the American flag in the schools right now. They'd be telling legislators to remove that law and take that out. And then you actually eventually get to lobby at the federal level, which I got to do. And I can remember sitting, um, you know, in presenting to a congressman or woman um, my points of view, uh, what I wanted for schools. And I could be concerned about national legislation um, and sharing with them. And they loved having local board members Mm -hmm. come and talk to them. They would rather hear us than a special interest group. Yeah, yeah. Now, if I feel that I am called to serve on a a local school board or I'm considering that possibility, where do I begin? The first thing you would do is find out what district you're in and if that board seat is coming up for election. Um, And you can go to your election board uh, to look that up. Uh, Go, you know, I think the Uh, If you're a conservative, the Republican Party has people working on this, so they may have that information for you also um, in your area. Uh, Unfortunately, I've been getting emails from people that are trying to go to the superintendent or the district office 
to get this information and they're being blocked or they're being told, no, you don't live in that district. And they did. They're trying to control who gets uh, elected, who even runs. So you definitely need to push beyond just talking to the district unless you're in a small rural area where they may be a little bit more friendly. Um, and do go to your election board and do um, go to your uh, Republican Party. Even though this is a nonpartisan seat, you want to go to people that are going to support you if you're a conservative. Um, and they will help give you the information of the seats that are coming up because you don't want to run against somebody that's already conservative on the board. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to find out what seats are open, what are coming up. Um, and then start to get some advice from people that are involved in elections uh, locally. I think for a lot of people who live in Oregon, who live in the Portland area, for example, that is extremely liberal, they might just assume it's not possible for me to successfully run for and earn a seat on the board. What do you say to those who um, are skeptical about the opportunity they might have if they do choose to run in uh, the more liberal parts of Oregon? or for that matter, Washington? Right. Um, So I would say that it is the moderates that turn the vote. And most moderate people, when they see the actual um, extremism or or sexually explicit curriculum and things that are being forced on the children and you can get them educated, they will vote for you. They, They just want decency as much as anyone else. They don't have an agenda. So I think the majority of citizens and parents don't have an agenda when it comes to children in schools. They all agree. And that's what I found how I won my race is once we got the word out, once the truth got out, you know, there were people from all different groups uh, that were voting for us because it's, it's children and schools that we're talking about. So I just went to a meeting recently where uh, five districts were represented and they wanted a workshop and some parents had organized this. And there were several candidates from, from Beaverton, Hillsborough, Candy, Clackamas. I mean, they were from all over, and they said, I'm running, and I just need help, and show me what to do. And here was a group of parents organizing this workshop. And there were some board members there that were conservative already on the board, and they were looking for people to run so their numbers could increase and they could make a difference. Um, so I say do it. You'll run. The first time if you lose, don't worry about it. Your name will get out there. Run again. Once you make a commitment and you have a calling, um, go for it. I think the tide is turning in America. I think people are fed up. And I think that the number of people on our side is greater. We just have to get the word out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's a lack of leadership. And when there are people on the board who uh, don't consider those who express their concerns as pariah. I think we're going to find that there are a lot of people uh, who embrace uh, the same, more conservative uh, yeah. ideas. How can people acquire School Boards, A Call to Action, your book that really is a training manual for those who want to run? It is on Amazon. You can uh, Google Dr. Wendy Flint books. I have several books out there um, or School Boards, A Call to Action, but be sure to attach my name to it. There could be some books that are not uh, of the Christian direction. Um, So it is on Amazon, and you can read more about me by just uh, going to wendyflint.com or drwendyflint.com. And I started a website called American School Boards and a Facebook page, American School Boards, because in Oregon in particular, with some other board members, we just want to get a little more organized and start to influence the Oregon School Board Association and get more numbers 
uh, elected in Oregon. So if they uh, go to that American school board, there'll be a place they can sign up and we'll start to organize. Well, I'd so appreciate, first of all, your commitment to serve as you did in the Evergreen School District and for helping to equip others who want to do the same, whether they feel that they are specifically called or just out of conviction and concern have decided I'm going to pursue this. This is a great resource, and I would highly recommend anyone who's considering this or if you know someone who is, make sure they have a copy of School Boards, A Call to Action. Dr. Flint, thank you so much for talking with us today. You're welcome. I appreciate this opportunity. The Lord said, Wendy, they're, they're, they, they called you a right-wing radical, which I know now is just a mild accusation. Back then, today they're calling parents terrorists. You have to help them. And I said, okay, God. And um, I wrote the book again. And I, and I pray anyone wants to write me an email that's running, I will reply to the email. It's on my website. And I will pray for you. Mm, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Georgine. Again, Dr. Wendy Flint. She's a professor at George Fox. She's the author of School Boards, A Call to Action, an excellent resource. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon, and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, you have election ballots on your coffee table, and you've received the voters' pamphlet. The election is May the 16th. One of the things that I wanted to emphasize today in the next couple of segments is how important this election is. Um, Half of the state's budget is spent on education, yet historically, school board elections have the lowest turnout. Now, how can that be? It's because we see the names, we see the ballots, and we don't necessarily respond. Well, school board members are unpaid, but they wield significant influence. And I think the pandemic helped all of us to appreciate perhaps a bit more the significance of the role that they play. Now, North Clackamas has four out of seven board seats open. This is a consequential election. So I've invited four of these individuals to join us here today to talk a little bit about what motivates them to run for office and uh, to commend them for their courage in running for public office and their willingness to serve in a position that is unpaid. So first of all, welcome to all four of you. Thank you. Now, it's a little awkward because our our studio is limited. I'm going to talk to one of you at a time, and that might be the most effective way. I'm going to start with you, Angela. Um, Angela Peterson is running for position seven. Angela has been a student, an elementary school teacher, a substitute teacher, a home instructor, a tutor, a volunteer, and a parent. (laughs) You are engaged, an engaged member of the community and an education advocate. What inspired you to run for the Clackamas County School Board? Well, thank you so much for having me on, and um, I'll just get right to it. Um, Having been in the district for so long um, as a teacher and then as a parent, um, I have witnessed firsthand uh, what has been going on in our public school system and more specifically our district. And what I'm seeing happening is a um, a, a huge divide. Uh, I am seeing a uh, push for a a political agenda, um, and um, it is really hurting our kids. It's taking precedence over the academic excellence that should be the focus. And um, it's it's a really toxic environment for staff members to work in as well. You, uh, in your effort to restore community engagement and a strong volunteer program, what's your view of the role of parents in preparing youth for academic success? Is there a role for them to play in all of this? We've seen some contention of late across country. 
Oh, my goodness. Parents are absolutely key to success of students. If they are not engaged and uh, welcomed in, and if they are not heard, their kids suffer. Their education suffers. Their socio, their uh, emotional status suffers. And that's what we're seeing in North Clackamas is that parents are not being engaged like they should be. Uh, they have kept volunteers out of the classroom since the pandemic, using the vaccine van- mandates as one of the um, obstacles. And um, we all know that that vaccine um, was not necessary to be mandated in the first place. It's keeping a lot of, of us who are still not vaccinated out of the classrooms. Um, and I think that there's an intent behind that that is not healthy. Um, parents need to be brought back in, volunteering uh, back into the school board uh, meetings that have been shut down by this current North Clackamas school board. Mm. Now, what do you see as the greatest challenge within the education system that you are uniquely uh, qualified for and um, desire to address? Uh, Well, you know, it's coming down from the Oregon Department of Education, a curriculum that is wrought with political agendas, um, uh, intent on indoctrinating our kids to only believe one ideology. And if they uh, if they step out of line, uh, they will be corrected, shamed or humiliated. And teachers that don't want to teach to just one ideology are also being uh, shamed, ostracized. Um, and that's why I think part of the reason we're seeing so many teachers drop out of the teaching profession is that they just feel like this is um, not a diplomatic, uh, conducive to critical thinking in education. And what's your goal in serving in uh, in the community as a school board member? What do you hope that you can achieve during your tenure? Well, I would like to see all four of us, because it's only if the four of us can be elected, that we can actually make some actual change. And when we get on that school board, we want to change the culture of the district to be a true place of uh, diversity and inclusion. And that means diversity of thought is welcome. And uh, that would be the number one objective to start off. Let's talk to Tara Nelson. She's running for position one. She's a longtime Clackamas resident, a parent volunteer in the school. She's worked inside the North Clackamas School District, and she's witnessed both the successes and the struggles students, parents, staff, and administrators uh, face. So, Tara, tell us why you're running for a seat on the North Clackamas School Board. This is actually my second time running. I have not given up on our children. The parent transparency and involvement needs to be there. The fundamentals of reading, writing, arithmetic, science, it all needs to be brought back to the classroom. Now, one of the things that um, your campaign material suggests is that you've witnessed both the, the, the successes and the struggles of students, parents, staff, and administrators. How will your approach address those struggles, the things that you have witnessed? I think every voice, every opinion, just because something isn't agreed on in conversation it doesn't minimize the other opinion. It's conversation that needs to be brought to. Everyone needs to be able to say, be safe to express and contribute. You know, one of the things that has impressed me about these four candidates is a desire to be inclusive, to collaborate, to welcome the community into the process of establishing the, the way education is going to be um, practiced in North Clackamas. Now, let me ask you how... Um, 
Uh, many parents have felt that they're no longer welcome at the table in public education. You've touched on this just a moment ago. How do you hope to implement better collaboration among education professionals, parents and students, which is a contentious issue these days? It goes back to the transparency, the simple, simple items. Let everyone be welcomed on campus. Let that information be given out ahead of time, how upcoming events are going to be available. Have with that communication, the knowledge, let the parents be involved, choose what's available instead of being told after the fact. It seems to me among the four of you, there seems to be a a high regard for parents and the role that they can and should play in education. And that is so fundamental. I think, again, since the pandemic, many um, in our community are recognizing the significance of parents' contribution and when they're unwelcome that we lose something in this whole process. Now, your campaign emphasizes fiscal responsibility and the fundamentals. Talk a little bit about that. With the fiscal responsibility the spending is over per child. The fiscal responsibility with the way items are being spent and shared, it's more research that you have to go into with the school boards being half the state's budget. There's no invoice from input from the parents. And with our spending within our district, we're spending over per child. Our results and rates within the state of Oregon and nationwide is lower. We're not producing well-rounded, educated children to be successful as they continue on, whether it be a career technical path, college, they, the money is not being appropriately spread out for all programs. Yeah. I think most taxpayers are happy to fund education when they see that education is producing students are prepared for adult life Mm -hmm. and independent living. So I appreciate that emphasis in that area. Now, we're going to take a break here in a moment, but let me just get my first question in for Amy Reiner, who is running for position three. Amy is the parent of a special needs child and fraternal twins. She is a seasoned sales professional, a youth soccer coach and an HOA board member. And you've decided you want to run for the school board. (laughs) Again, I commend you, the four of you, for your courage in making that decision. How does your parenting and professional experience inform your priorities and your approach as a school board member? Uh, that's such a, a great question, and and thank you uh, for allowing me to speak here today and and have uh, a voice, um, especially uh, a voice to parents. I know we all talked about not having that parent and community involvement within the the school districts, um, and that's vital. And that you know would be my number one approach. Stepping onto the board is really bringing in the collaboration of two parties together. And, and coming up with strategies and pathways to move our kids forward academically. What concerns me right now and what I'm willing to tackle once I get elected is we are underperforming in both reading and writing. And yet we are overspending. Like Tara mentioned, North Clackamas School District is spending $23,000 per student when the state average is around that fifteen dollars $16,000 mark. So from a business standpoint, and we talk economics, I'm not getting my rate of return when my child can't read and do math when they graduate. And that's a concern. And as a taxpayer, I would be more concerned at the fact that this school district is going to come with a levy, a school levy in the next few years and ask you 
to chip in on on more tax funding to help fund schools. And the problem with that is over the last school tax levy that was passed in North Clackamas School District, within five years, they projected 18,000 students within the school district. We're below 16,000. So who's going to pick up the difference? Taxpayers. Mm -hmm. And if taxpayers are picking up the difference, we want accountability. And it starts with the school board. And it starts with us four. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, with me in studio, Angela Peterson. She's running for position seven. Tara Nelson, position one. Amy Reiner. We'll continue to talk with her in a moment. And Courtney Swersbin, position two, all for North Clackamas. Uh, school district. Now, part of our motivation here today is if you're not in the North Clackamas school district, you are in some school district. You need to pay attention. Find out what these candidates are uh, are supporting, what they intend to do, and vote. Be informed and vote. You got the uh, pamphlet. You got the ballot. Let's move forward. Okay, quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And we are talking with some candidates for the North Clackamas School District Education Board. Hey, these are people who are willing to serve, to represent the interests of the community, and to do so in a way that is going to benefit the community. So anyway, we were uh, just before the break talking with Amy Reiner. She's running for position three. Uh, let me just ask you the, the point blank question. Why are you uh, running for a seat with the North Clackamas School Board? Because I want change. I want better academic results. I want children to not suffer from... Uh, confidence or anxiety or depression because they're not ready to enter in the the real world Mm -hmm. and the real world could be a four-year college a two-year community college a trade school or you can go right into the workforce but i want them to have that confidence builder that they've got everything that they need the toolbox is loaded and they're ready for their transition into the real world because sometimes the real world isn't kind and and you have to be able to work through uh, that adversity to to ultimately get your your end goal, whatever that goal may be. Um, but mostly, you know, I'm advocating for uh, my son. As you mentioned, I do have a special needs son, and um, we moved up here four years ago, uh, knowing that North Clackamas School District was great with special needs. And we've had, you know, phenomenal responses from the district in crafting his individual uh, uh, plan in order to uh, meet his goals. And the they've, uh-huh. yes, they've helped with that. And it's been a blessing. But when COVID hit, uh, we realized quickly that the special needs children were left behind and they were left severely behind and they were the last to go back to the classroom. And in fact, Oregon was one of the last states to go back into classrooms. So now we're looking at a two to three year deficit in education with no real solution on how to catch these children and and the students up. And that's where I come in is uh, with strategy, alignment, partnering, collaboration and discussion. I'm going to force the hand. We need to make some changes and we'll get there with the changes and we'll get there with these four. What you just described, I think, is one of the major concerns that parents and members of the community have is the fact that children were left behind following the pandemic and some were left more more seriously behind than others. How do we catch up? 
and uh, whether or not there's there's a desire on the part of those who are serving in the school board to to acknowledge that and do the hard work of moving forward in a way um, that will make that investment mm-hmm. that we all make in education work out. Now, your stated focus is to maximize student productivity and learning in a diverse population. Now, how do you hope to do that as a member of the Clackamas School Board? By bringing all affiliated groups under one umbrella. Mm-hmm. Bringing the students together, collaborating, getting the creative thinking flowing through and and understanding that not everyone is going to have the same decision or the same thought process as you. We all are brought up in, in different, you know, socioeconomic families and and we all come from a different you know moral fortitude and we have to realize that your beliefs and my beliefs may be different but how can we ultimately get to that goal together and 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 in a productive manner and and not you know dragging people uh, along the way and 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 what i mean by that is is you know, there's been a lot of, of bullying within schools, not just North Clackamas in particular, but all over. You know, how, how can we get the bullying to stop, yeah. right? And and how can we get the children to feel safe at school where, you know, they're not creating, you know, the anxiety or the or, or you know, um, depression, you know, with with the bullying that happens. But every day on social media, I see some sort of mom concerned that they're getting ready to pull their kids out of North Clackamas School District because of the bullying. Yeah, yeah. And again, this is a, we're talking about North Clackamas School District. This is statewide. Mm-hmm. If you have children in another school district, you need to be aware of the challenges and the impact that you can have by simply participating in an election when you get to choose who the decision makers are going to be. I'm encouraging you to um, to maximize your impact by voting in an election that typically has a lower voter turnout. Now, I want to talk with uh, Courtney Swersben. She's running for position two. Courtney is a small business owner. She's the mother of two. She comes to the Pacific Northwest from the Midwest. Her husband and children were all educated in the North Clackamas School District, and she's uh, fallen in love with this community, and that motivates her to want to serve. Now, let me ask you what I've asked the others. Why are you running for a seat in the North Clackamas School Board? Yeah, I'm running because I have noticed that since we moved here that there is a shift that has happened in this district. And I think that we need to focus on the children and not politics and reinstating education, um, the minimum educational standard, um, and holding every, being able to hold everyone accountable um, for what is happening within our district. And that includes the teachers, the administrators, yep. the students, and parents. Yes, Yeah. yeah. Everyone. Now, you are an advocate for reinstating minimum standards for graduation, inclusivity and accountability for the success of students. Now, how Mm -hmm. might you implement those priorities if you serve on the North Clackamas School Board? Yeah, um, I think that uh, when I talk about the inclusion and politics, like getting the politics out of the schools, getting focusing on education more than the social uh, affinity groups that they are creating and then we're spending money on. So I would reevaluate what is going on and why our budget, what, why we're having budget cuts and why we're having to cut teachers mm-hmm. and, but we can create all of these groups. So I just, um, that's something that I would 
uh, look into. Now, for you, how important are parents in that equation? Oh, they're super important. Um, everyone knows. Well, not everyone knows, but <laughs> everyone, should know. everyone should know that it's parents are vital in the decision making in their child's life. It's um, how I can't even imagine if I didn't have my parents to like guide me to the position I am today. I wouldn't be here without them. So um, I think it's important. Now, you mentioned a moment ago that you noticed a shift in the district over the last six years. That really predates the pandemic, but certainly was exacerbated by that major disruption. Um, How do you hope to bring things back to a standard where parents can say, yes, my children are advancing as they should. They can read. They can write. We're looking forward to making decisions not based on their inability, but their capacity to learn and grow and and flourish. Mm-hmm. How do you hope to reverse that that shift? Yeah. So one thing the state of Oregon has done is they passed uh, the bill where it lowered the standards of uh, the educational yes. system. And they did that in the they did that in the um on the backs of the colored kids so black brown um indigenous people and they did that and that's why it's passed so my one of my things is as amy has stated before and i love how she says it she's like they they have lowered these standards and then they say that they have this high graduation rate and it's not true they just lowered the standard so that they could say that they have this high graduation rate. So I think one thing um, is true is that we need to reinstate um, state testing. Yeah, and high, yeah. high standards. And, I, don't yeah, get me started sta- on that law that was passed. Yeah, <laughs> As a I black know. Girl, I'm, I'm I know. <laughs> I'm mad. I'm like fired. I'm not mad. Yeah, I'm it's, fired. It's up. insulting. Is what <laughs> it, it is. It's insulting. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, I, I have to say, the four of you will make <laughs> yeah. a formidable coalition in the North Clackamas <laughs> School District. Now, let yeah. me ask you about the teachers' unions. I think a lot of times when people are making decisions on their ballot, the first thing they look for is the teachers' union supporting the candidate as the measure of someone who will uh, represent them well on the school board. Is that a fair measure? That is a a real misconception that I would like to clarify. Um, As a teacher, I can tell you that um, there was a Supreme Court decision made back in 2018, so fairly recently, that uh, frees teachers up from being mandated to pay for the teachers' union's uh, coverage. They had been mandated all these years to pay into that. Uh, it turns out that the teachers' unions, if you hadn't known, uh, are completely a, an arm of the Democrat Party, and they are very politically uh, motivated. They have a, a very uh, specific agenda that they are pushing. Um, and so when somebody says, oh, good, the teachers' unions backed up a candidate, um, that's a that's you know not actually a good representation for teachers. Not all teachers are going to be um, – Taking the uh, not all of there's actually been a 20 percent decline in Mm -hmm. um, Oregon uh, teachers being in the Oregon Education Association Union. um, And that is growing because more and more teachers are realizing the teachers unions don't have their best interests in in at mind uh, and that they're also definitely not representing the students. Uh, Right now, we've got our Oregon Teachers Union 
uh, is standing behind House Bill 2002. And that bill, um, if you haven't heard about, is removing more parental rights yes. and allowing the government to to dictate what medical procedures are done to children as young as 10. With or without their parents' mm-hmm. knowledge. It, without, yeah, yeah, completely without their yeah. knowledge, but going to force their insurance to pay for maybe a sex transition or maybe an abortion at as young as mm. 10. It's just inconceivable. Our teachers' unions are backing that. So the, if you're backed by a teachers' union, we don't want you mm-hmm. in yeah. leadership. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, again, I, I want to encourage our listeners today to think carefully and to think critically about the ballot, the vote you're about to cast for individuals who will serve on the school board. Don't uh, give that responsibility to a teacher's union to just assume they have done due diligence, that they represent the best interest of the education system. Do your homework yourselves and find out who these candidates are. We've highlighted four of them here today who together hope to uh, do some significant work in North Clackamas County on the uh, the, the school board. And I hope that you will uh, consider them if you're in North uh, Clackamas, if you're in Multnomah County or where you happen to be, that you'll take full advantage of this opportunity to cast an informed ballot. Well, Angela Peterson running for position seven, Tara Nelson position one, Amy Reiner position three, Courtney Swersbin position two. I wish you all the best of luck. And again, I commend you for your courage in running and your willingness to serve our community uh, at some great cost for people who haven't really known what a political campaign can be like. It's at some considerable cost. So I thank you for that, commend you, and thank you for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank thank you. you. All right. Ballots are due on May 16th. Do your homework, folks. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, reducing the school week to four days instead of five is an increasingly popular idea among both teachers and students. I'm not so sure about parents, but is it actually beneficial? The answer to that question, well, will make a difference. Perhaps the real question is, who does it benefit? Well, there's some interesting reasons for shortening the school week. These reasons, however, are on the weak side, to say the least. Saving money is a pretty big one, especially for more rural schools. Some bus rides for kids are over an hour uh, an hour long. Just imagine the, the gas needed, never mind the wasted time. However, this might be considered a weak excuse. After all, isn't President Joe Biden bragging that he's invested 56% more into the annual education budget? Where is all the money going? Precisely? Well, perhaps into the teachers' unions' pet projects like critical race theory education for teachers. It seems that it's uh, definitely not going where it needs to. Well, another reason given is that a four-day school week uh, would lower the overall absentee rate for kids. And that's an assumption. If there's one less school day, then there are one less day not to show up to school. This is, um, well, a bit odd. Uh, The reason kids are absent more often than uh, has less to do with the school and more to do with the home. Fewer school days won't fix that. Another uh, reason that's being given for the change has to do with um, personnel issues. If one district has a shorter work week than a more desirable district still on the five-day uh, model, that may tempt good teachers to choose a job with fewer work days. Having a, to work fewer days may also reduce teacher and student burnout overall. This reasoning might be on shaky grounds, but there are some potential benefits. The four-day school week presents an opportunity for extended family time. Time at home with parents and siblings could potentially counteract some of the uh, ills and indoctrination with which schools are filling many children's heads. Well, this 
Extra day could also be dedicated to your child's pursuing opportunities to learn and develop new hobbies or practice their own other chosen sport. It could be used as another learning opportunity to develop study skills and help children learn to use their free time wisely. All of these ambitions and goals are top shelf. Sadly, they are utopian-like in nature and not likely to be the case. Unless a parent is a stay-at-home parent, many of these benefits wouldn't be able to be realized. Well, the reality is that the deficits outweigh any potential benefits because uh, these are public schools we're talking about and not homeschooling. The shortened academic week doesn't translate into more efficient learning. In a homeschool situation where parents are able to focus particularly on their children and this schooling needs um, uh, what they need in school, many are able to finish the majority of their work before lunch and spend the afternoons in other pursuits. Um, not so in public schools, even with the proposed longer hours for those four school days. One study found that the overall academic losses are just as profound as the pandemic losses over the course of a year. Well, a similar but less dramatic sort of academic loss is seen by each year or, or seen each year rather by teachers on a smaller scale called summer losses. Over the summer, many children have some academic losses because they haven't been doing anything that reinforces their school-learned skills. The majority of the first nine weeks of school is spent reinforcing last year's material and readjusting kids to learning. It's only logical that these losses over time would be greater on a four-day work model on top of a summer break. Other negative effects uh, that they've learned about from the pandemic applied to the four-day model as well. For some kids, school is their only safe zone. Home is a place uh, where there is abuse and neglect. Uh, home could also be in, uh, in a neighborhood that is saturated in gang culture, and one more day at home is one more day dodging uh, that life or not, as the case may be. Now, kids, unless directed by adults, would probably not use that extra time in a productive way. That's not entirely their fault. After all, they're merely a product of their society, addicted to social media and the dopamine hits that come with likes. Then there's a very real issue that most parents are working parents. If there are only four days of school, that means that parents would need to figure out child care for their kids on that day off. It quickly becomes a major drain on personal resources. Well, at the end of the day, these sorts of public school budget saving and popular measures are a bad idea. If the purpose of public school is to educate all American children, then it is increasingly more evident that our public schools are failing. The unions, school administrators and many teachers have lost sight of the purpose. They've instead placed their own needs above that of their students, their students' families and the community that they purportedly serve. Who benefits? Only those who profit from ill-educated masses. These days, that describes the elite and many who like to uh, lord themselves over them. In other news, 15 Republicans in the U.S. House and Senate sent a letter to the National Institutes of Health on Tuesday demanding answers about a study on experimental medical interventions for youth who claim to identify as transgender. Now, two of the study participants committed suicide. Eleven experienced suicidal ideation, and the drug participants took will um, will likely sterilize them, the uh, Republicans note in their inquiry. It's sickening, and I'm quoting from Representative Josh Burchine. It's sickening that the federal government is preying on young people and using our tax dollars to advance its radical gender ideology. 
Uh, in a statement on a, on the letter exclusively provided on the uh, to the Daily Signal, he went on to say, we are rightly demanding answers from NIH, and we are committed to holding those responsible accountable for this tragic loss of life. The National Institutes of Health granted $477,444 and a five-year grant to the Boston Children's Hospital, the University of California at San Francisco, and the Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago for the study. Psychosocial functioning in transgender use, uh, youth rather, after two years of hormones. Dr. Diane Chen of the Lurie uh, Child Hospital led the study, which the New England Journal of Medicine published in January. Well, the study analyzed 315 participants identified as transgender and non-binary between the ages of 12 and 20. 12. Over the course of two years, these participants received gender-affirming hormones, in quotes, i.e. hormones to make their male and female bodies resemble the bodies of the opposite sex, not changing their biology, but at least their resemblance. During the study period, appearance, um, congruence, positive effect, and life satisfaction increased, and depression and anxiety symptoms decreased, Chen's article on the study claims. Eleven participants experienced suicidal ideation and two committed suicide. It went on to say in the letter, the Republicans express grave concerns about the study, noting that 240 of the 315 um, participants were minors. So the vast majority, they cite a report from the medical organization Do No Harm, which found the study fatally flawed and borderline unscientific. Notably, the four clinics and some of the researchers who conducted this experiment are outspoken advocates for conducting gender transition interventions on children, the letter notes. In a video it uh, later removed from its YouTube channel, Boston Children's Hospital, one of the clinics involved, went as far as to claim that children can know their gender identity from the womb. Joanna Olson, a co-author of this paper, told CNN in 2014, we're definitely in the middle of a gender revolution, and it's exciting. The same researcher later received a federal grant to... uh, for a study in which she altered protocol to allow children as young as eight years old to receive cross-sex hormones. And again, they're looking into this practice. We'll continue to follow the story, but we are currently out of time. Want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And please cast your ballot by May 18th in this uh, very important election. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.